Second Thessalonians chapter number three is our text. We're going to begin reading it in just a second. But before we do, I want you to take your pen, if you're a note taker, and I want you to circle the very first word in verse number one. Second Thessalonians three and verse number one begins with this word, finally. And Paul begins this uh, chapter with this word, finally, because it is the last chapter in eight chapters that he has written to his friends in Thessalonica. Now remember, I know that you know this, that he didn't write in chapter and verse. He's just coming to the end of his letter. And so he begins to conclude his letter by saying to them, finally. So we are coming with Paul to the conclusion of his writings to the Thessalonians. After 10 Sunday mornings, All summer long, we have been studying together in these two books and thinking about the fact of Christ's return and how we should live as we wait for him to come. And today is the last message in this series. And some of you with Paul may be thinking, finally, you you can celebrate with Paul that we are finally coming to the end of this series. But I want you to notice as we begin to read in just a moment where Paul's heart goes and what his burden is as he writes this last uh, section of this book to them. Let's read it. You follow along. I'm in uh, 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse number 1. Finally, brethren, he says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all men have faith. But the Lord is faithful who shall establish or strengthen you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are both doing and will do the things which we command you. Verse number five, now may the Lord guide or direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. Now, before we talk about this waiting for Christ that he's emphasizing in this, uh, in this passage, I want you to notice that Paul concludes his writings to the Thessalonians. He concludes this second letter by asking them to pray for him. Did you see that in verse number one? He says, finally, brethren, pray for us. Now, it's not an unusual way for Paul to end his letters. He does this sometimes. In the book of Romans, as an example, he concludes with an ask for prayer. He does the same thing in the book of Ephesians and and in other places, and certainly here in 2 Thessalonians chapter number 3. He says, I want you to pray for me. But it's interesting to me what it is exactly that he asks them to pray for. By the way, when you think about requesting prayer or when you consider prayer requests that you've heard mentioned over the years, where do most of those prayer requests fall? You ever been in a meeting or a prayer meeting where somebody will say, hey, anybody got a prayer request? And and people will stand up and say, hey, pray for this or pray for that. And most of the time, the things that we ask for prayer about have to do with very personal physical needs. We'll ask to, you know, I've got this going on with my, my right knee or my left elbow or I'm facing this diagnosis or I got those tests or, or uh, you know, my, my loved one failed or this family member is sick. 
And we'll ask for prayer for those things. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Don't misunderstand. I'm not being critical. In fact, that's very right. We ought to pray about those things. However, those shouldn't be the only things that we are passionate to pray about. And Paul mentions nothing physical when he asks for prayer, nothing about sickness, but it's about the gospel. Listen to what he says in verse number one. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. Write this down somewhere in your notes. Paul asks them to pray for gospel progress. Gospel progress. He's interested that the gospel will go forward. He says in verse number one, pray that the word of the Lord, that simply means the, the word about the Lord or the message of Jesus, or simply put, the gospel. He says, pray that the gospel will have free course. Now, I love this phrase, free course, because what it means is that the gospel will have nothing holding it back, that it won't be hindered in any way, but that it will speed forward. It means to rush ahead speedily. Pray that the message of the gospel will go flying out of our ministry, he asks, or out of my life. He then prays or asks them to pray that the word will go forth freely and that it will be glorified. Now, the word glorified simply means that it will be received with honor, that people will hear the word as it comes to them. They'll hear the gospel and they will consider it. They will genuinely uh, consider the claims of the gospel. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday, and we were talking about Jesus. And he's not a believer, and, and uh, he said, you know, you're either on one side of the coin or not, and I'm on the not side. I'm just, I just don't believe in Jesus. And, uh, and so I asked him this question. I said, well, let me, let me just probe that a little bit. Is it that you would say, well, I just don't believe, or are you able to articulate the reasons that you don't believe. That's really what Paul is praying for. That as the gospel goes out, that people will just give the gospel a hearing, that they will consider it. Because very often as we consider the gospel, the Holy Spirit transforms, softens our hearts and transforms our minds, and we in fact are converted. He says, pray that it'll be glorified. And then fourthly, he mentions that it would be glorified or received even as it is with you. He simply says, pray that God will do among other people with the gospel what he has done among you with the gospel. And we know what God had done with them or among them with the gospel. We remember in the very first week of this study, we studied Acts 17 where Paul was in Thessalonica and he went in preaching the gospel and many people in that city believed. He said, pray that God will do similarly in other places, that other people will encounter the gospel and receive it in the same way that you did. Now, I love this prayer. And in fact, I think this is an instructive prayer for us as a local church. May I be the voice of Paul to you? May I simply say to you, pray with me, brothers and sisters. Pray that the word of the gospel would go forth from us, that it would be unhindered, and that as it goes forth, people would receive it and their lives would be changed the same way that our lives have been changed. Don't you think that's a worthwhile prayer that we ought to lift to the Lord? In fact, I want you to write this prayer down and, and I'm gonna call you back to it in the coming weeks and months 
And I want us to begin praying this. Maybe through the end of the year, let's pray, Lord, send your gospel at lightning speed through Brookstone Church. That's our prayer. Lord, send your gospel out at lightning speed through Brookstone Church. And do you believe that if we ask the Lord that in our ministries and from our pulpit and in our lives individually as we go out and interact with people that are in our circle of influence, that if we all prayed, God, send the gospel mightily and rapidly out through us and let people receive it like we've received it. You think God might do more in the next few months than we expect that he would do? Absolutely he would. We ought to pray that. And I'm going to call you to it in the week's to come. He says, I want you to pray that the gospel will progress. Secondly, he then says, I want you to pray for God's protection. Pray for gospel progress and then for God's protection. You see this in verse number two, where he says, not only pray that the message of the gospel have free course, but secondly, verse number two, pray that we may be delivered or rescued or protected from unreasonable, it means bad, evil people, that God will protect us from evil people and from wicked men, for not all men have faith. Not everybody's a believer, and not everybody is excited that you love Jesus, and and not everybody is going to be fanning the flame of your faith. Some people are going to stand in opposition to your faith and your sharing of that faith. So he says, pray that God will just open the way and he'll not only give the gospel a a turbocharge as it goes out, but that God will protect us from those who would stand against it. Now, by the way, Paul needed for them to pray this over his life because Paul encountered, as most of you know, constant opposition to the preaching of the gospel. Even in Thessalonica, in the very city where these people that he's writing to lived, he barely escaped being lynched by a mob while he was in Thessalonica the first time. He escaped in the dark of night. They scurried him out of town to save his life. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts that the same thing happened at Damascus, that the people of Damascus were looking for this Paul who had been preaching about Jesus and his friends put him in a basket and lowered him down over the wall in the night and he, and he got away that way. The Bible tells us in Ephesus, he was almost dragged into the theater, that 50,000 seat theater where they would chant, great is Diana of the Ephesians. He would have been pulled to pieces had they got him in there and yet God got him out by the skin of his teeth. He constantly faced these kinds of hardships. In fact, listen to how he spoke about it in in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me read it to you. In verse number 23, he says, I have received stripes or lashings above measure. I have been in prisons frequently. I have faced death often. Of the Jews, I received 40 stripes, save one, or 39 lashings. Uh, I've been beaten by the Jews. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Once I suffered shipwreck. I spent a day and a night floating in the deep. In my journeys, I have faced perils of waters, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen. I've been in danger from the heathen. I've been in danger in the city. I've been in danger in the country. I've had perils in the sea and been in danger from false 
brethren. Well, when you read that, you go, hey, man, Paul, I'm praying that God's going to protect you because he faced all kinds of opposition. Well, listen, in the same way, we need to pray over our ministry and over one another, that God would send the gospel forth and that God would protect us as we carry out the work of the gospel. Well, Paul writes to them in verses uh, 1 and 2 that they should pray for him. And then he says, back in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse number 3, he says, but the Lord is faithful. Now, praise God. Amen. The Lord is faithful. He's talking about these sufferings and struggles that not all men have faith. Protect us. Pray that God will protect us from evil and unreasonable and bad people. He's endured some hardships. But here's what he says. You ready? But God is faithful. Aren't you glad that in the sufferings of this life, you can say, this is going wrong and that's happened and that's bad and all these things have happened in my life. But let me end the sentence this way. But God is faithful. Amen. He says, God has been faithful to me and he is faithful among you. And he will be faithful, verse three, to establish you or strengthen you and to keep you or guard you from evil. Verse number five or verse number four, rather, and I have this confidence in the Lord regarding you that you are both doing and that you will do the things that I command you. Remember, this is the end of his second letter, and his writings have been full of instructions and directives and commands for them. And he comes to the end of this letter, and he doesn't say, well, I've just done the best I can. You're probably not going to follow what I'm telling you. No, he says, you know what? I praise God for his grace in you because I believe that by God's grace, you are doing the things that I've commanded and you will do the things that I've commanded. Loved ones, do you know that every time that we do what God has commanded, every time we live out the word of God or we are in obedience to the word of God, it is not us that's doing it. It is the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives enabling us and empowering us to do that. And so don't ever pat yourself on the back and say, way to go me, boy, me, glory be to me, but rather say, Lord, thank you for the grace that you give me to try to serve you all the days of my life. I know, he says, that God's at work in your heart and you're seeking to live out this life for Christ as you wait for him. And then you come to verse five, and here it is in verse number five. Yeah, having said, pray for me and ask the Lord to give, the, give us gospel progress and, and good protection, celebrating the fact that God is faithful and that he has given them grace to serve the Lord in these, in these days. He says in verse five, now may the, may the Lord guide you, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. May you lean into the love of God and into or as you patiently wait for Christ. He says, may God give you grace to lean into his love as you patiently wait for Jesus to come. The word patiently wait means to endure with faithfulness, to just remain faithful until that day when the Lord will come. Let me ask you a question. Are you patiently waiting for Jesus to come? Now, I don't mean, are you twiddling your thumbs? Oh, any day now he's coming. I'm patiently waiting. That's not what he means. He means, are you enduring in the faith as you wait for Jesus to come? Are you continuing in your faithfulness to Christ while you wait for that glorious day when he will finally appear? Well, I hope so. 
I hope you are patiently waiting for him because if we will endure to the end, if we will patiently wait for him to return, then I want to say to you that it will be so worth it on that day when he arrives. It'll be so worth it. Over these months, as you know, we have been thinking about the coming of the Lord and what the, this event of his coming will be like and all of the events surrounding the event of his return. And I've talked to you about numerous parts of his return, but today I want to conclude our series just before we get into what it will be like when he arrives. I want to take a couple of minutes and outline for you in chronological order the order of the final seven events all related to the return of Jesus. Now, I'm going to give you my view, my view of the eschatological order of events that will occur as we, as we approach the coming of the Lord. These are my views, my interpretation of what Scripture teaches. This is the official position of Brookstone Church, but I need to say to you, that there are plenty of good godly people who would read scripture and, and see things unfolding at the end of time a little bit differently than I do or than we do. And, and that's okay. It's okay that they view that a little bit differently. You know, there's all sorts of views of eschatology. There's premillennial uh, we've talked about uh, dispensational premillennialism or, dis, or premillennial dispensationalism. There's premillennial, there's post-millennial, there's amillennial. Um, I was talking to a fellow recently and he said, you know what, I'm a pan-millennialist. He just believes everything will pan out in the end. You know, God will, God will work it out. That's not a bad position to take either. It's a pretty safe position. But I want to give you my view of how all of this unfolds, okay? So we're going to do it really quickly uh, and then we're going to go over to Revelation to close this series. But let me give you these things quickly. Now, don't get frustrated at the guys upstairs controlling the slides because I've told them to go quick because we don't have time to keep these on the screen too long. So we'll give them to you later if you don't get them all, all right? Number one, what's the next event in the end times? It is the rapture of the church. That's the very next event on God's calendar. It's described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4 as well. It talks about the fact that one day Christ will come and catch us away. He will take his waiting church uh, to the clouds and then home to heaven. The rapture of the church is next. Number two, the judgment seat of Christ. Now this will happen immediately following our rapture into heaven where we will then be judged for our lives of service to the Lord, not for our sins. Jesus has been judged for our sins and God will not judge twice. Christ has paid the penalty, but we will be judged for our service to the Lord how we served him. Number three, the tribulation period. Now, quite honestly, numbers two and three happen at the same time. So the rapture happens, the church goes to heaven. While we're experiencing the judgment seat in heaven, on the earth, you have the beginnings of the tribulation period. Seven years of time that Jesus said would be a time unlike anything the world has ever encountered or experienced before or will in the future. The tribulation period. And then number four is the second coming of Christ. At the end of the tribulation period, this is when Christ will come again to the earth. Now in the rapture, Christ comes to the clouds and we're called up to be with him. But at the revelation, he comes to the earth and we return with him. The Bible says that he will stand in that day on the Mount of Olives and he will then uh, uh, return to the earth. That's his second coming. Number five, 
then is the millennial kingdom. We talked about this last week. The millennial kingdom, we call it the millennial kingdom because it will last a thousand years. Revelation 20 tells us it will last for a thousand years or a millennium. Christ will rule on the earth. Number six is the great white throne judgment. At the end of the tribulation, or I'm sorry, at the uh, end of the millennial kingdom will be the great white throne judgment. We'll talk about that just a bit in just a moment. And then number seven, lastly, is eternity with God in a new heaven and a new earth. That would be the final event or the final phase of this event of the Lord's return of these seven. So with that order, I want you to leave 2 Thessalonians and go over to Revelation chapter number 20, if you would. Uh, Revelation chapter 20. And I want us to talk today as we conclude about what it will be like when we are in this eternal uh, city of God, which he will uh, carry us into, this new heaven and new earth. But just before we do that, I want to spend just a moment talking about the great white throne judgment. You'll find a discussion about the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, beginning in verse number 11. It's just at the end of the millennial kingdom. And now God will gather together, he will call into session the great and final day of judgment. This is God's courtroom, God's court called into session where in perfect righteousness, it's the reason it's called in verse 11 the great white throne, white representing righteousness, in perfection and holiness and rightness, righteousness, God will ascend the throne of his judgment and he will judge. Now notice what verse 11 says. It says, I saw a great white throne and him that sat upon it, speaking of God and Christ at his right hand, from whose face, that is from the face of God, the earth and the heaven fled away and there was no place found for them. So in this moment, when the great white throne judgment begins, notice the first thing that happens is that creation itself, heaven, earth, the universe, the galaxies, that this current creation flees from the presence of God. That God is so majestic and so mighty and so holy and so righteous that even creation itself will withdraw from his presence. Have you ever said... I'm going to tell you what, when I, when I stand before God, when I see him, we're going to have a thing or two to talk about. <laughs> I got some questions for him. He's got some explaining to do. Um, no, you won't. <laughs> because in that day, even creation will flee from him and all you will be able to do is to bow to fall in his presence. Heaven and earth, he says in verse 11, will flee away from him. Now, it says in verse 11, there's no place found for them. So they're gone. Heaven and earth are put away. Which, by the way, Psalm 102, 2 Peter chapter 3, both those passages tell us that the current creation in which we live will one day be put away. Folded up like a vesture and be done with. It's gone. And all that will remain is the final judgment of all of the lost throughout human history. Now, understand, at the great white throne judgment, there is no, there, this is no determination of who gets into heaven or who doesn't. You and I are not standing in that judgment. We've already been with the Lord for, for a thousand and seven years in our glorified bodies, and we're not part of this judgment. We're saved. We're with him. 
But this is the final judgment of all the lost throughout all of human history. In this moment, all of history is past. Every deed has been done. Every word has been spoken. Every evil has been committed. Everything has been done. And now, in this moment, chapter 20, verse 11, God will call it all into judgment. You'll notice in verses 12 and 13 that this judgment is all-inclusive. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The dead, all who had ever lived. And now they stand before God. The small and the great, the rich and the poor, the significant and the not so much, the powerful and the weak. doesn't matter. The Caesars of Rome will stand in the same level, on the same level ground as the poorest among us today. The small and the great will stand before God. Verse number 13 says, the sea had given up the dead which were in it. And death and hell, that is those who had been in death, who had died eons ago or centuries, millennium earlier, they will be delivered up and they will stand before God in that day. It's all inclusive. This judgment is also, the Bible tells us in verses 12 and 13, it is thorough. Verse number 12, I saw the dead small and great stand before God and the book's were opened. Skip to verse number 13. I'm sorry, at the end of verse number 12. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now all I know to do is interpret the scripture very simply for what it says, and it's this. It is that there are books in heaven which record the works of every person. So that every deed and every action and every sin of every person in all of history is recorded in heaven And that one day those who know not Christ will stand before God and every sinful act that they thought had been hidden and covered and no one ever knew, it will be revealed in in, in contrast to the perfect holiness of God's white throne. It will be judged out of the things written in the books according to their works. And there's a second book that will be opened. Verse number 12 says the second book will be opened, which is the book of life. Hebrews tells us that when we come to faith in Christ, that our names are written in heaven. Now, if we could, find, if we could see the book of life today, if the Lord you know, were to just put it down here on the podium today and say, there is the book of life, you've got 30 seconds. I'm sorry, I'm passing all of y'all. I'm going to the D's. And I'm looking for my name. Now, not that I would have any doubts. I'm confident in Christ. I'm confident my name is written there. But what a glorious day, amen, to see your name written in heaven. And yet, what a tragic day if your name is not there. Because these verses tell us that everyone whose name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It's thorough. It's all-inclusive. It's also final. Verses 14 and 15 tell us that, that it's final. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, they were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. It is final. This is the end of every person who has rejected Christ. Every sinner throughout all of history will one day be judged by God and their judgment, their eternal death will be final. Loved one, let me implore you today. Let me beg of you. If you've never come to faith in Jesus, if, you're, if your name is not recorded in heaven, come to Christ today. 
trust in Jesus as your Savior and let your name be written in heaven and your sins forgiven so that you'll not be at this great white throne judgment. Well, he describes the judgment in those verses and then you arrive in chapter number 21. And interesting, in verse number one of chapter 21, it says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, why did there need to be a, a recreated or a new heaven and earth? Well, because verse number 11 of the previous chapter says the first heaven and the first earth are gone. So there's got to be a new one created. So he creates this new heaven and this new earth. Verse number one, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. and There was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city. I'm in chapter 21, verse 2. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death or sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Verse number five, and he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. I make all things new. And so when you think about the coming of the Lord and leaning into that coming and waiting for him to return, you should know that when he comes, he will ultimately put away all the old and he will make new all things. So in our final few minutes of this series, let me talk to you for a moment about what he will make new in that city. Would you write it down? He tells us in these verses, chapter 21, verse 2, verse 10, he tells us that in that day he will create a new Jerusalem. A new Jerusalem. Now I have to tell you, for a guy who loves the old Jerusalem as much as I do, this is great news. Because if the old Jerusalem is as wonderful as it is, how thrilling must the new Jerusalem be? By the way, did you know that the word, the name Jerusalem, comes from a combination of two words, Yahweh, or God, and Shalom, which is peace. It is Yahweh Shalom, Yerushalayim, or Jerusalem in English, and it means the city of God's peace. That's what Jerusalem is. It is the city of God's peace peace. And yet we all know that the peace of Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem in this world, has been shattered. Jerusalem was founded 3,000 years ago under the reign of King David, the dynasty of David, and he established Jerusalem in the mountains of Israel as the city of God. Second Kings says that God spoke of Jerusalem and said, that's my city. I have put my name there. Solomon built the temple of God, which would be a prayer house for all nations and would declare the glory of God from Yerushalayim, the city of God's peace. And yet because of sin, the peace was shattered. The temple was destroyed. The graves were defamed and defaced. The Babylonians sacked the city and violence came and the Persians followed them and the Greeks followed them and the Romans followed them and the, and the, and the Muslims followed them and the Crusaders followed them and throughout 3,000 years of history there has been no peace in the city of God's peace. But listen, one day there's a new Jerusalem coming and that will be a city of perfect peace. He says, I saw this new Jerusalem coming down from God 
out of heaven. I love his description of it in verse 11, chapter 21, verse 11, where he says, I saw this new Jerusalem and it had the glory of God. It emanated with the glory of God. It radiated with the glory of God. He tells us beginning in verse 12 and all the way through the end of chapter number 21, he talks to us about this new Jerusalem. Verse 18, he says it has walls of jasper. Verse 21, he says the streets are paved with gold. Verse number 21, he says the gates are pearl. The city is like crystal. It reflects and emanates the glory of Almighty God. What a place that will be. He even tells us in chapter 21 the size of the city. 1,500 miles wide is this new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven. And it's not only 1,500 miles wide, it's 1,500 miles long as well. But I don't know how many square miles that is. I hadn't done the math. 1,500 by 1,500. Some of you mathematicians could do it. That would give you the square miles. But it's not just squared. You would have to cube it because this is a... If y'all are listening, shout amen. This is a city, not like an earthly city that's just long and wide. It's tall. It's 1,500 miles tall as well, the new Jerusalem. I can't wait to see it. Number two, he talks about our new condition in that city. As God makes this new creation and he, he provides us with this new Jerusalem, we begin to experience life in a new way, a way we've never experienced it before in this eternal city. In fact, our old condition in the old creation that we now live in, it's so marked by sin and suffering that when he describes our new condition in the new creation, he really just describes the new one by telling us everything from the old one that won't be in the new one. Now, look at it. Let me walk you through it. Chapter 21, verse 1. He says, in this new creation, a new heaven, a new earth in verse number 1. First heaven, first earth are passed away. And there is no more sea. In that new creation, there's no ocean. Now, I know some of you are disappointed by that because you're, you're beach bums. And you love to go to the beach and stroll along in the shore and the shoreline. And, and you enjoy that. And this, the reason you enjoy it is because for you, you're only experiencing just the very edge of the sea where it's really pleasant but we all know that the sea is more than that isn't it the sea is this vast tumultuous raging place of darkness and mystery and death that will overtake you in a moment with its vast waves and sink you to its bottom hopelessly to die there it is a sea which is dangerous and dark and fearsome and it is a divider it separates peoples. And God said, when I create this new place, there will be nothing raging or dark or scary and nothing to keep us apart. There is no sea in that land. He says, there's no sea. He goes on in verse number four to say, there's no tears. Chapter 21 and verse number four, there are no tears in this new creation. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. They will need to cry, verse four says, because there will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain for all of these former things are passed away. There's no sea and there's no tears. He tells us in verse number 22 that there's no temple 
Now, you may not be too thrilled by that. That may not mean much to you, but if you were a Jewish person and you read there's no temple, you'd be, wait a minute, no temple. How am I gonna connect with my God? I've gotta go to the temple to connect with him. He says in verse number 22, you don't need a temple for God himself is the temple and he will be present with you and you will have fellowship with him. There's no sea, there's no tears, there's no temple. Verse number 23, there is no sun and there's no moon. The city had no need of the sun nor the moon. Now you may have been thinking, well, what's the, what's the pull of the moon gonna do when there's no sea? What will it pull? How will that gravitational pull, if it's not affecting the tides, what's it affecting? It's a good question, but don't sweat it. There's no moon either, amen? No sun and no moon, he says in verse number 23. Why not? How are we gonna see? Well, the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the, I don't think y'all getting this like I'm getting this. The lamb is the light thereof. No tears, no sea, no moon, no sun, no temple. He says in verse number 25, chapter 21, verse 25, the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day for there shall be no night in this new city. Praise God, there's no night. Have you ever laid awake at night? Many of you did last night. You lay awake? It's the middle of the night, three in the morning, four in the morning, you're staring at the ceiling and every burden you have in life is running through your mind. The devils, the demons come out at night and they, and they torment us with fears and, and we worry about things and you, you lay in the night and you can't sleep. Now, I gotta tell you, I don't know anything about that. Tracy says, I have the gift of sleep. She, she said, I don't know how you do it. You roll over and you're out just like that. I said, baby, it's a clean heart, it's pure conscience. I don't know why you're laying awake. But let me just give you good news. If you lay awake at night, there's no night to lay awake in in heaven. Amen? No sea, no tears, no pain, no suffering, no sorrow, no death, no temple, no moon, no sun, and no night. Chapter 21, verse 27 tells us that there'll be no sin there because only God's righteous children will be there. Chapter 22, verse 2, there'll be no sickness, there'll be no curse. This is our new creation, our new condition in the new creation, dwelling in the new Jerusalem. If you're glad, say amen. It's one more thing. You see this in chapter 22, verse 25. It is there's a new freedom there, a new freedom. Listen to what he says, chapter 22, verse number five. There shall be no night there. They have no need of a candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord uh, will give them light. Verse number five ends with these words, and they shall reign forever and ever. That is, God's children dwelling in this new condition in the new Jerusalem in his new creation will reign forever and ever. Reign over who? That's my question. I, I get it that we reign with him in the millennial kingdom on the earth, but this is the new earth and the new creation and the new Jerusalem. Who are we reigning over? I don't think it's a matter of who we're reigning over. I think what he's teaching us is what we're reigning in. I don't have time. Go read it later. Romans chapter 5. If y'all are listening, shout amen. In Romans 5, Paul says that by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world. And because sin entered into the world, then sin passed upon all men. Unrighteousness became the condition of every person because we have all sinned. And then he goes on to say this. And because sin entered into the world, listen, death reigned because of sin. 
But then in Romans 5, he goes on to say, but in the same way that sin came into the world by one man's disobedience, even so by the obedience of one, the second Adam, Jesus, by his obedience, righteousness came into the world. And because righteousness came into the world, now death no longer reigns, now life reigns. You see, in this former creation, there was sin. And because there was sin, there was death. And death reigned over us. But Christ came from eternity into the old creation. Christ died for us. Christ rose from the dead. Christ ascended to heaven and promised to come again and make a new creation where we could live with him in perfect righteousness, no sin, so death will never reign again. We will reign in life forever through the cross of Jesus Christ and his power. That is the new creation. And that's the hope of every person. That my eternal life will extend forever and forever and forever because Christ has made me righteous and life will reign. And so my question is, have you come to faith in Jesus? Do you know Christ for sure? And do you know that you will never stand in judgment at the great white throne, but rather you will stand in glory with your Savior in whom you've trusted alone.